Hi there, and welcome to the podcast episode of the television show Stargate SG-1. For the channel, let's review with Layla and you. For additional content on the other review episodes published by this account on a variety of subjects, come visit us in the RSS community where you can find us under the name Let's Review with Layla and You. You can also find us on Instagram under the same name. Here you can find more additional in-depth content, including with every episode and upload of promotional posts accompanying every podcast episode, as well as provide us a place vacation and where we can share and exchange ideas, thoughts, and whatever else you like to share concerning this whole adventure that we're setting out on together. So come meet up with me, myself, and I, and I would love to hear what y'all think. Hope to see you there. Welcome to the review of Stargate SG-1 Season 1 Episode 3 The Enemy Within. Its original air date was August 1st, 1997. It was written by Brad Wright and directed by Dennis Barry. As for always, the episode starts off with an MGM lion roaring. Next, we see General George Hammond discussing the planets SG-1 and SG-2 are respectively going to visit in their upcoming missions, designated P-3575 and P-3A-577. Don't that just roll right off your tongue? Colonel O'Neill and Kowalski are having a little funny when there is an incoming wormhole. They seem to have devised a standard response to an incoming wormhole, closing the iris with armed guards set up around the gate and setting the self-destruct to three minutes. Good, means they're smart about it. Numerous thuds are heard impacting the iris shortly after the wormhole disconnects asks them to move in to check for radiation, which is smart. I hadn't even thought about that. The iris is, of course, a completely new thing. Gate travel is a completely new thing. They don't know much about it. They have luckily learned that placing the iris over the event horizon isn't enough to make it unable to dial the gate, so you can still have an incoming wormhole but you can at least stop people from coming through or objects coming through but we don't know anything about anatomical residuals so that's smart i like that i hadn't even thought of that only sad bit i think is that we now miss the big whoosh that i always love plus i'm wondering because okay spoiler but later in the show the whoosh seems to be able to disintegrate anything and everything in its path but here somehow it don't disintegrate the iris and i mean the iris is made of titanium or it's not made of what the gate is made of because then it would make a little sense that they would be able to close it over the whoosh because it's made of the same material as the gate and apparently it's capable of holding an event horizon of an incoming wormhole or outgoing wormhole you know a wormhole but yeah that's like a little nitpicky note that isn't consistent and i mean it's fiction <laughs> but looking back learning some of the things later on as they are explained these are the kind of mistakes that you see earlier in the television series but we're making it up as we're going along which is also part of its magic of course here you know i'm here pointing them all out to you because you know i'm annoying like that but overall it, it doesn't take away of any of the magic of the anticipation the tension the exhilaration that the tv show elicits when you watch it in my opinion anyway of course this is all in my opinion what i would love to hear is your opinion it surprised me that Daniel seemed genuinely shocked when he considered that the thuds that we're hearing are people. I mean, what did you think it was? Well, that's maybe just me, considering the numerous thuds that you hear. I mean, that means that they sent entire armies through the gate and your iris is blocking them, which is good, right? 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 Hey, I'm all for peaceful resolution, but in this case, what else do you want to do? Open the iris and let them all through? At the same time, I love what the Daniel Jackson character brings to the whole team. It's very Air Force and military approach, thinking, whole wartime mentality. And Daniel Jackson really adds that humanity component to the show and to these antics. Some would say war is a necessary evil. I don't know if I agree with that. I do think that conflict is part of human nature, but the way we go about it 
is looking at what's happening in Ukraine right now. Basically, we're already in World War III. Third World War in a little over 100 years time. People just haven't named it thus. But as soon as Russia invaded Ukraine, and there wasn't a decisive response that immediately shut that down, I knew that this would become the Third World War. Because this conflict can only escalate further. There's already so much pain and death and destruction that is going to impact generations to come. It saddens me greatly that apparently we haven't learned shit. And I mean, at every point in our history, there was a war somewhere on this planet. Yes, conflict is part of human nature. I just think that the way we go about it could change, should change. We have a lot of learning yet to do. We can work on our conflict resolutions. I think we should. Pronto. Major Kowalski is seemingly still battling a serious headache. So Colonel O'Neill sends him to the infirmary. Next, we see the new intro. Same tune, different images. We see Richard Dean Anderson. We see little snippets of upcoming episodes. Really builds up the anticipation of watching the next few episodes. We see, again, the Stargate SG-1 logo with the Earth symbol front and center. Like it. Next, we're introduced to the, all the main characters of the television series. And those constitute, in addition to Richard Dean Anderson, to Michael Shanks playing Dr. Daniel Jackson, to Amanda Tapping playing Captain Samantha Carter, Christopher Judge playing Tilk, Donis Davis playing General George Hammond, and at least here we get the whoosh! Yay! Thank you! Next, we learn that Colonel Jack O'Neill actually officially made the request for Tilk to join SG-1, and General George Hammond tells him that his request is denied. In fact, someone from the Pentagon is gonna come to Stargate Command to talk to Tilk. Oh goody. What I love here is that General George Hammond makes it very clear that there is no chance whatsoever that Tilk will be joining SG-1 anytime soon. And the beauty lies in that even though he is very clear and very firm on that decision, he also gives you the sense that he doesn't quite agree with the decision. Again, in a very short time, they cover a lot. They cover all the different reasons why we should fear, doubt, question Tilk. Of course, when O'Neill gives a little push on that decision, General Hammond adds he is the first alien species we've ever encountered. Doesn't that qualify him to be a subject of scientific interest? And then, yeah, all of a sudden you realize that, of course, they want to probe him and test him and do all kinds of unspeakable things to him. I like that even though they don't directly come out and say it, they clearly show it in the non-verbal communication that they both do not agree with that sentiment. However, you also see that General George Hammond clearly understands that one, Tilk is an alien species, the first one we've ever encountered, and two, inside of his body he carries the larval form of a very hostile enemy, thus a considerable threat. Plus, I like it that they also voice that is of serious consideration that this is a man that turned on his superiors once. On the one hand, we're very thankful because that's what saved our friends. On the other hand, if someone can do that once, how loyal, how trustworthy are they? So again, that is a valid concern. Later, O'Neill goes to visit Tilk, who's clearly been locked up in the brig. Again, in this conversation, they allow a question that we as a viewer would definitely have to be answered. Actually make Tilk ask the direct question, am I a prisoner? And I love, and this really is one of the reasons I love this show, there's no bullshitting, no fronting. When after a short pause, O'Neill admits, Yes, here they allow, again, another viewer question to be answered, with Tilk being the one saying, how are you so understanding? Because you would think that O'Neill would be one of the people who knows better than 
anyone the threat to go all pose, but he seems to be 100% accepting of Tilk. Even though Tilk kidnapped Skara, he was in direct servitude to their enemy. But here, for me, it was illuminating. When O'Neill explains to Tilk why he trusts him so Im implicitly, is because he saw Tilk stand up to a god, and that puts it into perspective instantly. And that makes me a more understanding of O'Neill's implicit trust in Tilk. What I like is that here they chose Tilk to be the one to ask the question, why do you even trust me? And not General Hammond, because O'Neill, we already know, can bend the truth a little when it suits him. But here it really is just a direct question from Tilk, why do you even trust me? And because he answered the previous question, am I a prisoner, with, with absolutely no frontin', and I believe his answer. Again, I love the fact that there's just no bullshitting. Next, we see Major Kowalski in the infirmary getting examined. The doctor asks him all kinds of questions because technically gate travel is very new to them, so they have no idea what the effects are on the human body. While he's getting examined and the doctor finds the scar through which the larval gold entered him, I have no idea how they filmed this. You see the symbiote under the skin go up along his spine and curve into his head. Beautifully done. Creepy as Fuck! Definitely makes my skin crawl. Again, we see his eyes glow, thus now solidifying the takeover by the larval Goa'uld, because shortly after, Kowalski kills the doctor and goes to the gate room to... pray? By the time he's discovered, it appears that he blacked out because he doesn't seem to remember how he got to the gate room. Still, no one seems the wiser because next we see Jack O'Neill joining Kowalski in the deserted infirmary waiting for the doctor. It seems the dude from the Pentagon, Colonel Kennedy, has arrived to interview Tilk. And other than being maybe a little over the top eager, he seems to be alright so far, for now. I like that General Hammond treats Tilk with respect. They start to interview Tilk and it quickly becomes clear that Tilk knows nothing of the technology or workings of either Go'uld technology or the gate. He even calls it Go'uld magic and says that it's forbidden for people such as himself to learn more about that. At that point, bless him, Colonel O'Neill enters and asks permission to barge in, which thankfully is granted, because Tilk needs all the help he can get because so far this interview is not going well. Also, I love that they use this moment for O'Neill to not just stand up for Tilk, but also to teach us how to spell his name. T-E-A-L apostrophe C. Because knowing how to pronounce and write someone's name is a sign of respect. And as someone whose name gets constantly either written or said incorrectly, I feel this. And I suspect a lot with me. This whole pronoun drama that's going around lately where people get so bent out of shape when they're asked to address someone by the pronouns that that person identifies with. There was a discussion that someone was bitching about all the pronouns these days and such a hassle. And I said, no, it's a sign of respect to address someone the way they want to be addressed, how they identify, and to make sure that you do that correct is the decent thing to do. So no, they weren't being unreasonable and they weren't being dramatic in their request. Then my friend went all in his hizzy. So I explained in a way that she'd hopefully could relate a little better to that I understood where they came from, even though I identify as she, her, cisgender woman. I explained to her by having a foreign name, 99% of the time people mispronounce my name or write my name incorrectly but oftentimes people see my name in writing and then try to pronounce it so it's often said wrong instead of written wrong but when people meet me and they just know how to say it then they don't know how to write it so it's always either or it's never someone that writes and says it correctly like never and the odd thing is my name isn't that foreign and unknown and difficult to pronounce seeing that 
and I was named after a quite famous Eric Clapton song. Usually I at the very least correct people once, but after that they still don't get it. Back in the olden days I would give up because it's quite uncomfortable to continuously keep pointing out that someone made a mistake because some people get a little defensive when you point out that they make a mistake, particularly if you do it more than once. But now, no, it's a sign of respect. Learn my fucking name. It's not that hard. I mean, it even got to the point where I would just answer to the name Lila instead of Layla, which is just a shame because it's a name with a beautiful rich history. I mean, it's apparently derived from an epic love poem. Tragic, but big. Hashtag fun fan pack. The name Layla is from a poem that seems to have inspired greatly William Shakespeare to write Romeo and Juliet. So Layla could be seen as the origin behind the character Juliet. Plus, of course, Eric Clapton wrote that song about the wife of one of his very good friends, George Harrison from the Beatles, Patty Boyd, who he was in love with. And yeah, that whole triangle got messy and did not result in a happy ending for nobody, which basically tells you all you need to know on that front. I do have a fond memory concerning this whole mispronunciation drama. It got to the point that I stopped correcting my math teacher. We were in a really big class. And when I stopped correcting him, the class took over. So when the teacher kept calling me Lila, I had like 30 people going, it's Layla! Things that only needed to happen like once or twice. And after that, he remembered my name. And he did not make that mistake ever again. That was fun. Gotta love an army of minions. But yeah, I told her, like, I find it annoying to the point of disrespect that people just continuously keep mispronouncing my name. And then the most beautiful thing happened with the person who said it was such a hassle. Because then she said, oh, I get that too. In her case, it was more the other way around. Like, people say it correctly, but they always write it wrong. And I said, well, doesn't that bother you? You continuously, repeatedly have to correct people. And then she was like, uh... Yeah, okay. This shows how critically important it is to find that way in, to find that area where a person can relate more easily or can relate at all to the point you're trying to make. And then all of a sudden, people have that cognitive shift as in they actually start to think about it differently, which makes them feel about it differently, and that changes how they behave differently. After it's made clear that Tilk doesn't appear to know anything about the technology that the Go'uld use, they then ask about the magnitude of their presence, and we quickly learn that there are more, such as Apophis, who control many worlds, and when they find that a planet no longer has any use to them, they just abandon the planet, leave the people to fend for themselves. When Kennedy asks about the possibility of negotiations for peace, Tilk immediately nixes that idea and says they have no need for peace. If they could kill you, they would, because we pose a serious threat to their rule. If they find the opportunity, either they would destroy us or enslave us. And of course, thanks to the Iris, they now can't come through the gate, but we all know that they have the ability of spaceflight. So Tilk points out that, yes, they're capable of spaceflight, but such a flight would take many months because, of course, we need time to establish this television show before we immediately go into a possible extinction level event. Tilk starts to talk about, in their history, there was a tale of a primitive world called the Tauri, meaning first world, the world where these primitive species first evolved. Some were taken as Goa'uld hosts, others were turned into Jaffa, and the rest was enslaved and seated among the stars to do their bidding and serve in their armies. And that makes the general, the colonels, O'Neill and Kennedy, realize that the Tauri that Tilk is talking about, the world that they harvested, is our world. We are the Tauri. Seeing that evolution has shown us that our species evolved on this planet. 
this seems to both be a shock, but also a ray of hope for Tilk. When he says, you are my and your many, many ancestors among the stars, greatest hope. This scene for me was so smart because it instantly gave our tiny little planet that up until now was completely in the dark. The great responsibility that all those millions, billions of people seated among the stars are our ancestors. For the writers to introduce this narrative, so smart, because apart from our need to explore or our hero complex trying to always jump in and save everyone, this now also, the way I view it anyway, adds a moral component to wanting to help the people on all those enslaved planets because we are directly related to each other. They are our ancestors. Plus, it also doesn't hurt. With this narrative, we now position ourselves firmly at the center of this story. As Daniel Jackson gets convinced by Carter to finally get some sleep, he is the one that discovers our dead doctor, right around the time that Dr. Warren discovers Kowalski's gold infestation. By the time they apprehend him, he's already gained access to the control room and beats up a whole bunch of people, including Captain Carter, take Carter hostage, and into the elevator. When she tries to emergency break the elevator, he yanks her back so hard, you see her bounce off the wall and just slump, and apparently that's slump was not acted. Hashtag fun fan fact, though not as much fun for Amanda Tapping who plays Captain Smith Carter. The actor Jay Akavone who plays Major Kowalski yanked her back so hard she actually hit her head to the point that she passed out and she suffered a concussion. Boy seems to not know his own strength. Stargate personnel tries to break open the elevator where Major Kowalski and Captain Carter are trapped. We suddenly hear Kowalski screaming for help. He seemingly has no idea what just happened and actually appears very concerned for the welfare of Captain Samantha Carter. In the next scene, they finally seem to realize that Kowalski is infested with a gold and we see him strapped to a tilted table with a hole for his face. Kind of makes you wonder how it was to record these scenes. Of course, the situation is very dire and yet this scene, watching him being strapped down to the tilted table with his face poking up through the hole, I can't help but also find it slightly hilarious. <laughs> The hypothesis is that because he was infested with an immature gold, it hasn't taken him over completely. Though this information doesn't necessarily help Kowalski all that much, it does however prove that something of the host does survive, at least until it can completely take the host over. That fact appears to give Daniel at least some hope for his wife. The doctor is unsure if he can remove the symbiote because it's so woven around his spinal cord and nervous system, it might kill Kowalski or leave him a quadriplegic, but Hammond just says, I will fly in the best. That's nice that the Air Force is willing to invest in its people. Doesn't really seem to fit the narrative of the United States Armed Forces and when we see how they treat veterans, but hey, let's go with this and this is how they should react, right? Next, of course, a symbiote invaded one of their personnel. Only person that they are aware of who carries a symbiote is Tilk, and because they don't know exactly when or where Kowalski got infested, the next logical step is to pay Tilk a visit. And I did not clock this, but apparently in this scene, the symbol on Tilk's forehead is upside down. Hashtag fun fan fact. And yes, his little fella is still right there, as creepy as ever. Though Colonel Kennedy seems to be unwilling to share with Till why they ask for this, O'Neill has no such scruples, so he explains it's because Kowalski has become infested with a gold. He is the only one they know of that has that little fellow in his belly. Next, Tilk asks what are its demands, because that is what he knows gold will do. They make the demands. 
Once Tilk learns that it's an immature symbiote and that Kowalski still surfaces and just experiences blackouts, he says there will be a struggle for the host body. He also warns them if you try to remove it, the symbiote will be able to kill its host. Because they're spiteful little fuckers like that. Tilk suggests to offer the symbiote life to save Kowalski. This suggestion upsets Kowalski to such an extent, for a moment the symbiote takes over. And he's a bossy little fella. By saying, release me now or I will destroy you. Overinflated ego really is their thing. It does also seem to solidify Tilk's allegiance to Earth when the Goa'uld calls him a traitor. After Kowalski seems to be back in control, General Hammond calls a meeting. Apparently, Colonel Kennedy has made recommendations that bless General Hammond wants to share with the class. Colonel Kennedy seems to be of the opinion that removal is too great a risk that will most likely end in the death of both the Goa'uld and Kowalski, and thus we risk the opportunity to maybe negotiate with it, learn from it, or at the very least study it. This obviously, riles everyone up. Once Kennedy realizes he's lost any and all support from the people in the room, who apparently are not yet ready to view Kowalski as a lost cause, he says, well, I'm gonna go to my superiors, where General Hammond just pulls out his trump card to the intense pleasure of the Air Force personnel around the table and says, well, I'm just gonna call the president. And I mean, as trump cards go, that is a good one. And I really don't like that phrase now anymore, trump card, because we had a trump and a president and that just was not a good combination. Can we find another one for that, please? Is there another one for that? If so, please enlighten me. In this meeting, we learn another fun fact about the Goa'uld. Apparently, even though the Goa'uld infesting Major Kowalski seem to be awfully eloquent, not to mention already have a giant-sized shiny personality, they are apparently born with the knowledge of their predecessors, meaning they somehow are able to pass on their knowledge through genetic memory. Which is impressive, if it in this case wouldn't be so highly disturbing. What I find interesting about this scene, apart from the dialogue, is the seating arrangements where Tilk is placed next to Daniel. Now, I know that O'Neill illicitly trusts Tilk. However, we don't really know how Daniel is in all of this. And I mean, yes, Tilk also saved his life, but still to seat the man next to the husband of the wife and brother-in-law that you kidnapped and were directly, indirectly responsible for being taken over by Goa'uld, I mean, if I were Daniel, I don't think I'd want to be seated next to Tilk right then and there, but okay. What do y'all think? Is that just me overinflating, or do more people agree with that assessment? Whatever your opinion is, please come share it on the Instagram page for Let's Review Layla and You, because I would really like to know how others view this. Another compelling act by Tilk is when he allows the doctor to experiment on his symbiote to try and help Kowalski. They're testing out several anesthetics to see which one works best on the symbiote. Ironically, this means that Tilk still ends up as a guinea pig, yet now it's his own choice, so that does somehow make it better. It, if anything, shows what a good person Tilk is, that he offers himself in aid of another, instead of, you know, kidnapping him to Area 51 and dissect him. This way, we treat him as a person with his rights intact, and we still get the opportunity to study him, to learn from him, because, yeah, that's important. He is like a genetically manipulated human, carrying an alien species. I mean, just saying. 
Already we're learning very important things, as Tilk tells the doctor that Jaffa cannot communicate with his own symbiote, because with all the genetic memory thing, you could just say, well, Tilk, talk to your symbiote and get all the information that we want. But this way, that avenue is immediately shut down, because nope, unfortunately, Tilk cannot just plug in and download all the information from the symbiote, if only. But that would have meant we solved the problem and the end. The next scene is between Colonel Jack O'Neill and Kowalski, where Kowalski seems to be accepting that he's gonna die, or there's a great likeliness of him dying, when he talks about wanting to be cremated. And what I love, and partially also the reason why I love this television series so much, is it tackles very important, very serious topics, but it's greatly balanced with also genuine connections, fun, and laughter. They somehow know how to keep that perfect balance going. You're invested, you care about the characters, but you're not all depressed after watching an episode such as this. As the surgery starts, I cannot but be amazed at how already trusting everyone is of Tilk. He's seemingly allowed up in the gallery, and he's just walking behind General Hammond. No one seems to be watching him or worried that, I don't know, he could possibly suddenly do a 180 and murder General Hammond or something, or make his goal jump into someone. Who knows? Now, watching with a little more critical view, hardly trusting, especially considering how usually high-strung, uptight, if it which is wrong, we blow it up, shoot first, ask questions later, or never. Mentality that the US Air Force is known for. Then again, this embodies the beauty of fiction. It's similar to our world, but better. When watching this scene, I was like, bam, they are very interesting. Knowing the powers of the Goa'uld, the technology that they possess, I mean, technology-wise, they are light years ahead of us. They were light years ahead of us around 8000 BC, I'm just saying. Not to mention the apparent insidiousness of the species. Kidnapping, murdering, possessing, enslaving, experimenting on. They are oddly trusting, but then again, you cannot not love the character Tilk and Christopher Judge, so I'ma let it slide. But in general, yes, I would typically assume, hmm, you know what happens when you assume, yes I know, hmm, that we would be a little less trusting, but you know, we gotta love him and we need to hurry this bonding process along a bit. So for now, let's roll with it. I just say what they yank out of his spine looks three times larger than the thing that went into Shari. I'm just saying. But yeah, it still looks creepy and icky and yeah. It seems that despite a few hiccups here and there, they removed the gold successfully and Kowalski is alive. After all of this, Kennedy says he has orders to now take Tilk to Langley for study. Hammond reiterates that Tilk was valuable by offering his help and deserves our gratitude. Could not agree more. I mean, who'd have thunk? I actually miss smarmy-ass Samuels. At least he was just a smarmy dick. This Kennedy is just cold-hearted SOB. Kowalski happily, shockingly, appears to be fine, says that he would like to talk to Tilk alone to thank him for his invaluable help before Tilk gets shipped off to Langley. Then all of a sudden, apparently, Kowalski is not so fine. It turns out the Gold did become one with Kowalski before the surgery was completed. Thus, the thing that they removed, the big long snake thing, was, was a dead husk. Nothing more. He now offers Tilk the deal, serve me or die. Tilk, bless him, says no. So next we see Gold, the man formerly known as Kowalski, starts to throttle Tilk and we see him pass out. 
Meanwhile, O'Neill and General Hammond are heatedly discussing Tilk's fate, while Kowalski now successfully dials the gate and starts up the destruction sequence. As Kowalski enters the gate room, we see that Tilk is barricading the ramp, which instantly makes me hear Gandalf saying, You shall not pass. As Tilk and Kowalski continue to struggle, together O'Neill and General Hammond shut down the destruction sequence. Tilk and Kowalski are fighting near the gate when Tilk pushes Kowalski's head partially through the event horizon and apparently there are no ill effects when you back out of it if you've not completely gone through it. Which I suppose now teaches us surreptitiously something else about the gate and gate travel. At this point, O'Neill yells to Tilk, hold him there, as they shut the gate down. This causes the back of Kowalski's head to get lopped off. Delightful. And we see part of the symbiote just slither out and just go extra extra crispy. By the way, nasty. Tilk acknowledges O'Neill's loss by saying he was your friend. O'Neill responds with the moving words, my friend died on the table, which I guess is true. The fact that the Goa'uld seem to know the auto-destruct sequence does mean that the host survives, which gives the team hope for possibly being able to rescue Shari and Skara in the hopefully soon-to-be future. We wrap the episode up with General Hammond animately talking to the president on the telephone. Apparently, all is well. Incidentally, Kennedy's also in the room and the president li like to have a word. Uh-oh, someone's in trouble. Next, we see SG-1 getting ready to ship out a reconnaissance mission. And lo and behold, Tilk joins the team! We see Tilk for the first time in his Stargate Command uniform, but with his own staff weapon. And he says, reporting as ordered. O'Neill reminds him that he's supposed to add a sir when he's talking to General Hammond, which is cute. And thus we've come to the end of another Stargate SG-1 episode. Woofta, it's been a doozy. What a good one. The next Stargate SG-1 episode that we'll be reviewing is called Emancipation. That title in and of itself already makes me want to watch it. How about you? Hope to see y'all back soon.